You are listening to Fanta Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Lowcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. What's up, everybody? You're listening to episode 32 of Making Tracks, brought to you by the team at fanfortracks.com. And with me today is Mr. Mark Newbold. Mark, how are you doing? I'm very well, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm surviving, as I think most people are. We've got another, what, three weeks worth of uh, lockdown in the UK? Yeah, yeah. And luckily, the um, Rise of Skywalker Blu-ray dropped to my doormat yesterday, so a nice ray of sunshine has uh, has burst through the clouds, which is great. Have, have you watched the making of documentary yet? That was the first thing I did, absolutely. In fairness, normally I do watch a film first, but I'm waiting on my UHD 4K copy, so I was like, I'll wait for that because actually what Zavi sent me I'd ordered the 3D version because that was a steel book kind of yeah. cover which looks lovely yeah. let's watch the, um, all the bonus content yeah the uh, Legacy of Skywalker documentary was was amazing it was um, beautifully shot yeah. coverage was really good I think there was a really nice kind of balance of not dwelling on the past too much but also balancing how the Rise of Skywalker does pay a lot of homage to um the previous films i i thought it was great have you seen it uh, yeah i saw it a while ago I, I thought it was magnificent and i i was lucky enough to interview Deb patterson who's the director of the documentary and uh, yeah she she sort of explained a little bit about how they made the film how jj wanted a filmmaker to make the documentary as, as opposed to a documentary filmmaker if that makes sense mm. it's almost like they were making two films concurrently and obviously as different people talk about during over the production uh, different guys who've worked on the film have said you know they shot a lot of stuff and there was a lot of changes as they did it because, you know, they were kind of tweaking and adjusting like they do in all films. Uh, so it was almost like making two films at once. But, yeah, I, I thought it was a brilliant documentary, given that, you know, she had access to like 350 hours of, of sort of archive footage and some of it had not been seen before yeah. publicly. You know, So to get into that and see all that and like you say, all the comparisons between what they've done before and what what happens in this film is just really sweetly done. I was really, really impressed with the um the restoration you could see done on the the archive footage because some of that stuff I've seen before and it looked his age but yeah. this they've done a really good uh, really good job on the the cleanup and I just kind of generally thought that it was just a really it was really well paced and it was funny actually my girlfriend sat and watched it with me she said this feels like another film and I said that's exactly what it's meant to be they cover every aspect of the story in in almost in the order of a film pretty much to an extent so that was quite nice so it didn't jump around out of context with the final film's timeline, which I thought was really a nice, nice touch. Uh, like I said, we've been lucky with documentaries in Star Wars. You know, the direction of the Jedi was a brilliant documentary, and there was, you know, there was good stuff around The Force Awakens. Yeah. Obviously, everyone remembers the beginning for, for episode one, which was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of like the benchmark, isn't it? So we've been very lucky, but this was this was right up there with the best. I think so. I think it was put, put a nice little bow on the, um, the sequel trilogy, and I think it, it just went to show just, again, how much passion all the cast and all the crew had for this film and for the entire production, you know, for the entire sequel trilogy. 
So that's always very moving. Obviously, they, they spent quite a bit of time talking about the absence of Carrie, which was quite emotional, I have to admit. But at the same time, the way that they did that and the way that they handled it, both in the film and actually in the legacy of Skywalker, I thought was just was just beautiful. I'm Corey D, and I get my Star Wars news from Phantom Pass. Episode 9, Season 7, The Clone Wars. Old friends, not forgotten. Mark, encapsulate for me your feelings and your thoughts on this episode of The Clone Wars. Mind blown, pretty much. Ah, just... Just the very first ten frames of that green Lucasfilm limited text come up. Uh, you kind of knew you were in for something a little bit special, and I don't think it at any point slowed down or disappointed in any shape, way, or form. Really, I mean, we went from the yeah the, the old school Lucasfilm logo to the Clone Wars in red, which we always tend to kind of symbolise with, with special kind of episodes, but also the main theme as well, which. Is that the first time we've heard that, or is that just the first time we've to heard that? To my recollection, to my recollection, it, it was. I don't remember, and please write text, email, whatever, correct me if I'm wrong, but to, as best as I can remember, I don't remember them ever opening with anything other than the, the Clone Wars version of the main theme, if that makes sense. Correct, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it was wicked. I wonder if it's, if it's basically to do with um, how close we are now to Revenge of the Sith. That was basically the reason that literally, you know, we're only starting probably this episode an hour or, or so, or a couple of hours before the events of Revenge of Sith start to unfold a little bit. So, Well, I mean, that, that they were very cute in laying out the the characters and, and geographically where they are. So you see Ayla Secura on Felucia and you see Plukoon on Katanamoidia flying not on the ground but flying you know just as he was in the film and it says in the in the sort of the tom kane's narration you know jedi generals have been sent across the galaxy you know and that was a great thing about revenge of the sith was you really got the the geography of how far apart all these generals were how stretched the republic was in these sort of final hours especially as the battle of coruscant kicks off and i think um just the the kind of the dynamic that obi-wan and anakin have at the, yeah. at the beginning is very much kind of just a prologue really to Revenge of the Sith and that's possibly a really good way of kind of describing it. It felt almost and this is going to sound weird because we've still got three episodes two weeks to go until it the, you know it finishes and just to say and I'll put it in the show notes there was a tweet put out by one of the uh, Lucasfilm Animation guys this morning saying you guys clearly loving this but if you you know let us know and we'll do more so there's kind of an oblique reference to yeah maybe there's more of this to come you know whether whether it's more episodes of the clone wars filling in missing arcs doing animated versions of things like dark disciple or son of dathomir and stuff like that or just doing a series that continues after you know the events going on whichever it is lucas from animation seem keen to do more because they know that we're getting a buzz out of it but it did feel like the end of the martyr sister story it almost felt like the end of season season seven if mm. that makes sense and that this like you've just said is very much a prologue to revenge of the sith because that was that was the beauty of that old micro series run back in 2003 the tartakovsky stuff that actually came out before revenge of the sith you yeah know? it was taking you right up to the events of when that film opens you know it, that pretty much finished with the battle of coruscant didn't it it did as i remember yeah pretty much so did. you know so so we're kind of one stepping on the toes of that beautiful little series which i still wish was canon because it was gorgeous and two filling in gaps and it fits in so beautifully you've just said about the anakin obi-wan uh, relationship absolutely agree it was beautifully done i mean everything just just seemed to just kind of click and it was a really interesting kind of dynamic not only between anakin and obi-wan but also the dynamic between 
Anakin and Ahsoka because it kind of felt like Anakin was the one who was trying to kind of break the ice again. He, he, yeah. he kind of almost had that slight awkwardness about him that we haven't really seen from him since Attack of the Clones. Somebody said online yesterday, I've got to jump in, somebody said online it was a bit like, you know, the end of Greece when when Olivia Newton-John's character turns up and Danny Zuko's a bit like, whoa, he'd, he'd never seen her like that. And of course, we don't know how far after The Wrong Jedi this was. And uh, somebody online, I sort of said, oh, I can't quite get the chronology in my head because obviously these episodes aren't in consecutive order. They're sort of backwards and forwards a little bit. And somebody says, oh, they, they reckon it was 10, 11 months of getting on for a year. So she has grown up. She's physically got bigger and she's grown up and she's matured. And like you say, you know, Anakin's a little bit awkward and, hey, Ahsoka, how are you? And she's like, I'm here for business. Let's crack on. Yeah. You know, and she's giving him those little looks of like, this is why I left. Yeah. You're just prevaricating. You know, Obi-Wan's do, doing it by the book. And she's like, we ain't got time to do it by mm. the book. So it's just some great little character work in there. Where a lot of people maybe have discounted the Martes uh, sister's arc. There is that kind of that one scene once we find out that the separatists have invaded Coruscant airspace yeah they have that kind of conversation between Obi-Wan and Anakin and Ahsoka and Ahsoka's kind of saying just a second ago we were just about to fly off to Mandalore now you're because of politics you're going to leave me high and dry and go and defend uh, the Emperor which is basically in one way pretty much what the um Rafa and and trace them yeah. out. that's kind of their opinion pretty much that was kind of their view on things and how the jedi react to things in yeah in this current climate i thought that was a really nice touch it really kind of galvanized those two arcs it did and i really liked it because i've always had i've always said it when people have spoke about it that it was clear to me as a fan and as a viewer that the public were increasingly annoyed with the jedi and you kind of see it in attack of the clones but you really see it by Sith. You kind of sense it by Sith. So for this to pick up that thread, completely pick it up and run with it and, and not just obliquely refer to it, but actually say, this is why the public don't trust you guys anymore. You're not here for us. You're here for Palpatine. You're here for the Chancellor. And the Soka can see it. Yeah. I've written my review for the episode. It's not quite out on the site yet, but, but it will be in the week. And, you know, and I say, you know, it refers back to that line that Palpatine, again, going back to the fact that bad guys almost always tell the truth and say it is, it is. Palpatine says to Yoda, your, your arrogance blinds you. Mm. You know, Mace says it to Yoda in, in the, um, in the dropship at the one point. You know, our, our ability to, to view the force has been diminished. You know, they know they're not seeing the force correctly because all these other factors are sort of blinding their vision and it's it's funny how ahsoka's had to take that step away and and live a bit of life and and kind of keep her jedi heritage down not just because she's not proud to be a jedi and she's not responsible with the powers that she's got she knows that she was in a baying crowd of people she'd have to fight her way out because the people's opinion on the jedi is just so battered at this point yeah and that that distance like you said really kind of gives her that perspective Absolutely. The, the visually, this episode was completely cinematic. I mean, some of the stuff in this is stunning. What mm. did you make of that? I, I've said all along, this, this this whole series is just mind blown. But the um, yeah, this this episode, the, the battles and real kind of atmospheric elements, the smoke yeah. created so much lovely texture, um, and the lighting was done in such a beautiful way yeah. that it just, like you said, it it felt very cinematic. It felt like whatever happened after this and with respect to you know how much pressure or cajoling that we give lucasfilm and disney this does definitely feels like all chips on the table we're going to make this as stunning as we possibly can so that if if there is never another star wars animated series or there's not another star wars clone wars episode 
people can look back at this arc and just say this is yeah. the best basically this is literally the paramount of of animation art and style and execution couldn't agree more it felt musically as well the music was gorgeous it felt like it was spotted like a movie rather than a tv episode you know sometimes tv feels like they're waiting for the advert breaks and this never <laughs> felt like that every element was fantastic <laughs> Fantatrax. Right now, we're going to step over to our friend Lee Towersy. Part one in this episode, part two in next episode. But this is me and Mark talking to Lee Towersy, who, of course, worked on the Star Wars movies. Since we last spoke, a little film came out that made about a billion dollars around the world, Rise of Skywalker. We haven't spoke about what you did on that film yet. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you got stuck into on that film. Fortunately, as normal, I was there quite early for the pre-production stuff where the guys are designing the droids. You've got the, the doing the artwork and the concept stuff, and we're, we're picking droids and what we're going to be making and so on, and the director and the production team get to choose what they would like us to make. And um, it was quite a big team this time. The droid team, there was up to about 10 of us in our own workshop, and I was mainly looking after R2-D2 again, plus I was fortunate enough to be involved in some other droids as well. So when you get a, a, a sort of a layout of the droids that are available to be worked on in the show, obviously you're, as you, as you said, your predominant droid is R2, um, but of the other droids that are there available, how do they get sort of divvied out? Are there certain droids that are more specific to, to your skills and then to other people's skills? Is that kind of how it works? It is in a way, yes. Um, the ones that usually land on my lap are the remote control droids. If they've got a drive base involved, if it's a, let's call it a glorified remote control car, because even R2-D2, you know, he's, he is just like an overweight R2 um, remote control car, really. Yeah. Uh, that usually ends up in my lap. So um, there is a little track droid that is in the encyclopedia. Unfortunately, you didn't get to see it in the film for very long. Um, I think you just see the top of his head, but it's um, a blue and yellow droid. That was something I was involved in. And then I was just helping on any movement any remote control movement on any of the other droids kieran shah was riding on a droid and he had some pedals that he had his feet on that were moving so <laughs> myself and a guy called adam keenan we set up a rig we just had a remote control and it looked as though his feet which were puppeteered um through radio control it looked as though he was steering the, the droid that he was riding with remote control that, so we were just doing that off the camera so just little bits and pieces like that and then because there were 10 of us in the in the droid room then do get to eye up you you see these drawings and the, the work that we're going to potentially be making and people just generally eye up what they quite fancy making and just grab the bits of paper and we all come to agreement who's going to be making what and we pretty much share the work out between us and people have got certain skill sets they're better at some things than others yeah and going by the aesthetics of the droid that does help you you know decide which is more suitable for you or not and it usually works out quite well. And we can jump on and help each other out as well. You know, it's not always one person building one droid. You, you may jump on and, and help people out with various aspects. And if they're running a little bit behind, you know, you can all, all help out and do a, put in a night shift or something like that and, you know, get it bashed out and, and finished in time. So if you're really passionate, if you're looking at the board and there's something you're like, either that's really within my wheelhouse, I really want that droid, or... I've never done one like that. I really fancy a crack at that. You as a team can sort of roll it around and know that you've got each other's back if there's a problem or whatever it might be. Absolutely that. Roughly how long does it take you guys to kind of build a droid from 
conception to when it's rolled out? Are, are these things turned around pretty quickly? We never have long enough, Mark, because the actual time to build, um, we've we built joys in a day before, but usually it's about three weeks. Wow. We usually do a mock-up um, out of cardboard just to get the scale of it and make sure that the designer is happy with the size of the droids because we are only looking at a piece of paper. You know, it's not a CAD drawing or anything like that, so we haven't got dimensions. They help us out by usually drawing a character, drawing a person next to the droid, so it gives us an idea of scale. But um, to make it into a, a 3D object, you know, we, we have to just mock it up if we've got time. From the mock-up to the finished painted droid, um, usually about three weeks. That's what we usually do. But I, I say never enough time. When, when that three weeks is over and you've finished, you wish that you could probably go back and make it lighter or, you know, just have a different approach on the build once you actually finished it. If I did that again, I'd probably do it in a slightly different way. But we don't get that time because before you know it, you finish your three-week build and you're on to the next thing. On to the next one. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's just kind of the beautiful thing of hindsight, really, isn't it? That you yeah. can look back and you can see that. And I suppose the, the next time you do then attempt a droid, you can then try those different techniques. Definitely. Yes, definitely. I've, I've learned a lot. It's been, what, six years now I've been at Pinewood. And um, I've definitely learned a lot over that time, you know, with approach on electronics um and various other things materials as well i've learned about new materials and it's just skills that people bring in they favor certain approaches and you soon pick up whether it's better than your approach or not and you've got to admit to that and embrace it and um it helps you along the way and we, and we all share you know information on on approaches to build and what have you but just to just to quickly go back on the the one day build it, it was going back to solo we were doing the control room where L3 breaks everybody out, everybody out of the control room, and it's just complete chaos. And they quickly wanted a couple of new mouse droids. And one of the guys in our workshop called Paul Shabesta, he's a very talented model maker, he went off in a day and built two new mouse droids, new designs, and then came back with them the following day. There you go, two mouse droids done. Wow. Which is, wow. Which is amazing. And again, they made the encyclopedia. So um, one of them's like a cheese-shaped thing. They're, they're both blue in colour. And the other one we call Twin Towers because it's got two tall sections to it and like a trench run in the middle. But, um, yeah, he, he made them in a day. And it's like, my God, you know, amazing. So, uh, yeah, we, we do have to turn things around really quick on rare occasions. With the builds, when you, you mentioned you do cardboard mock-ups to give a sense of dimension for those, you know, for the designs and such. A couple of things. One, how detailed are the mock-ups? Are they... Are they painted up just to give a rough idea of, of the aesthetic? So they sit in a scene or are they literally just cardboard? And also dimensions wise, you know, if you're building an R2 unit, is it always what's an R2, 112 centimetres or something? Are they always the same sort of height or, or is there a variation in scale there as well? OK, so the, the R2, the astromechs are all exactly the same size. Mark, yeah. we use that off the same plan. So they that stays consistent through the films. But with other mock-ups on, on new droids... Um, they can be from literally a basic sellotaped together cardboard because, again, it depends what time we have. We may have the production team coming round in the afternoon, you know, so and, and we have what we call the show and tell where we'll have all the droids lined up, whether they be half finished, whether they've been greenlit and we know we've got how we've got to make it or it's just literally, well, let's try it. We'll do a cardboard shape and it could be just a flat, a flat, you know, single dimensional shape as well just on a yeah. 
dandy. You know, it just depends what time we've got. But I will say there was one guy, um, again, another talented model maker that was part of our team called Waldo. And he made a droid of foam board. He made it out of foam board as a mock-up. And it was so good. He ended up painting it. And it was so good. We use it in the film. We, we <laughs> did, it didn't go beyond the mock-up because it was so, so good. So it's just a static droid. Was that in The Rise of Skywalker? It was in, in Solo. In Solo. Yeah. Can you find it in the crowd? Where is it? It's in the control room. And, and it's in the encyclopedia. It's the photocopier. It's called... We, we called it the photocopier droid. And it was actually called the photocopier droid in the encyclopedia. Wow. But that was just our nickname for it. But, so how Pablo got to know that was the name that we were lovingly calling it just in the workshop. It looks a bit like a photocopier, basically. You know, we, <laughs> we're not very creative with the names. <laughs> Hello, I'm Warwick Davis, and you're listening to Fanther Tracks. What was the most unusual build you did, not only in terms of visually looking at it, but in terms of what you had to do to pull it together? Question. Question. Me personally. Um, I think the track droid, actually, which Pablo's kind of called the LT droid, it's, it's got a nice drive, track drive system on it, which Tim Berry designed, who I know you know very well. Um, that, was, that was probably my favourite build that I've, that I've ever done. And what was so unique about that that made it so special for you? Well, it was it was one of the first full droids that I'd made from a drawing, which was drawn up by Jake Lunt that uh, helped design BB-8. And um, it was quite a challenge. It was quite similar to an Astromech, so I, I did have a bit of a, a starting ground because I knew how the approach was going to be. It was going to be an inner framework like R2-D2 has, and it was going to be shod in a skin like R2-D2 has. But it, it was smaller, and then it was integrating somebody else's work, which was Tim's drive system, into the track droid. So that was that became a challenge as well, you know, just working together with someone. Through that build, Tim Berry's become one of my best friends, you know. So uh, oh, yeah, travelled all over with each other. So it's, it's brought us together as well. So um, yeah, it, it was it was it was pretty cool. And those those track droids are pretty quick because I've seen one. They do seem to kind of move quite quickly, don't they? They've got a different kind of way of moving compared to an astromech yes mark they have and that's just because of the track system basically and it's got a wider base as well so it makes it more stable if it wasn't so top heavy as um mark witnessed when we were at um comic con a couple of years ago i I didn't laugh once (laughs) my mouth was just too agape to laugh (laughs) (laughs) the last time we did a piece together actually mark which is when we discussed my charity auction that i was doing that's right we were having the interview as my droid was face-planted. Yes, um, face-planted, that's a good phrase. Yeah. I saw that, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that still gets quite a lot of mileage, I, I hear, from the, the droid yeah, builders. Of course, of course, yeah. The, Sam, Sam Prentice likes to get some mileage out of the things I do, so, uh, of course, it's got to be a, a wonderful bit of payback. I was I was really trying to pay him back for what he does to me, and he just was <laughs> a victim of his own success, really, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned when you were doing the track droid and you were working closely with Tim in terms of you're building the uh, a large part of the exterior, but then within that there's drive systems that have to be integrated. Yeah. And so when you did builds before, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, I would imagine for the most part you were working on, on your own, doing your own droid builds prior to working on the films. And then you're coming in, you're part of a different team where somebody may come up with a drive system that might not quite fit and you've got to work together to make it work. 
that process obviously over the years and the different films has progressed how involving is that to make these drive systems fit within a quite a specific template let's say you're doing an astromech and you you've got to make it fit yeah well well thankfully now because of cad a lot of people are starting to use that now now don't get me wrong cad's cad's an old system cad's been around for years but as a hobbyist you know that wasn't something i had at home that wasn't something i had in my toolbox i didn't i didn't know cad but now you've got people cadding things up on computers so they can physically see well look this is the droid i'm building tim this is the this is the size that i'm going to build it from the mock-up the, the cardboard shape that i originally made can you make a drive system to fit that so he then transfers the, the measurements into his computer he knows what motors we would like to use and he he literally mocks it up on the screen so it, you see the droid grow before you on on the monitor and so he he's got a good idea that it's going to work thanks to the cad before we, he even actually started building the drive system which i suppose when you've got a fast turnaround that's pretty crucial isn't it indeed. Confirm that. Yeah. yeah indeed but it's, it's cad still got its place because a lot of people i know start with cad some of the mechie guys they cad things up and like with the animatronic heads and so on that can take forever that can take ages if you're spending a week cadding stuff up in my eyes you're losing a week of building you still got to produce these physical objects so um yeah it's got its place but uh, a lot of people wouldn't be without it and it's it's very useful so since you started then has there been one kind of main technology that has come along that's really helped you in your you know when you make the droids is there like a time-saving kind of process that's kind of you've learned or i think certainly with the film industry mark it's it's all about the team so yeah approaches are, are different on bills and so on but the creatures department is massive and you know i've already mentioned that i'm part of the model making team which was 10 of us but then you've got the mech shop you've got the electronics guys you've got the fabrication team you've got the mold shop you've got the foam shop you've got the paint shop there's so many different departments within creatures that the way you all pull together and all those different skills and as much as I like painting, I do try and paint some of the droids myself, for example. But, you know, the best thing you can do with that, as long as he's not overloaded with work, is pass that on to Henrik that works, that runs our paint shop. And he'll do a great job with it. The best thing about working on the industry is the team effort and being part of the build. It's very rare that you entirely build a, an item, a creature entirely on your own, because there'll always be a fabrication element. Even some of the joys that I build, you know, if you've got a performer inside, there'll be strapping and padding inside to make it comfortable as possible for the performer. And that's where the fabrication team come in. And because um, they, they make up all the strapping and harnesses and, and so on. When you've got your droids laid out uh, and they're being decided upon, do you know what location, do you know what planet these droids are going in? And I ask that because if you think of R2-D2, he was almost designed completely in isolation. And we've seen R2 in snow, in mud, in forests and deserts. With some of the droids that are designed, let's say, for Rise of Skywalker, were there any droids that were designed specifically being on Ajan Kloss or wherever it might be? Or are they just designed as a droid and they go where they go? Great question. Yeah, so what we do is... One of our early meetings when we start on a production, the pre-production meeting, is the first people that have started in Creatures are the designers, your Jake Lunt, your Luke Fishers and your, your Ivans and so on. Now, they, they'll have been drawing stuff up and by then we'll have big boards, boards and boards of drawings of droids and where they would probably appear. 
Now we never they never use the planet name, so we never actually know if we're going back to Tatooine or Hoth or wherever. We never know that. But if there is a snowy planet or a desert planet, they'll just have code names, just like everything else throughout the film. So we don't always know until we see the script or we're actually there shooting where we actually are in the film. So to answer your question, yes, we do have a rough idea of the environment that the creature or the droid is going to be appearing, but that can change. Do you prefer it that it, the, the droid can be anywhere or that it's, yeah. a, you know, if there's a droid that only ever lives on Tatooine, it's, it's you know, weathered or you know, resistant to sand getting in its joints and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I, I do. I, I like that they can move around. You do have to have the backstory, though, because the people that are real passionate about it, they, they want to know how that droid got from that planet to that planet. You know, and, OK, we work around that by just repainting the droid. <laughs> 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 that, that's the workaround. But, um, yeah, we do, we do know roughly what sort of planet and environment the droid is going to be appearing on. But, like I say, it can, it can change. It can move. Right now, we are living through a really unusual period of not only our lives, but, but everybody else's lives. You know, it's, it's what's going on with people being at home and such. How are you getting through and coping and keeping busy with uh, this current lockdown that we're in? Well, I'm very fortunate. I just started working on a production at Pinewood, which I can't talk about, I'm afraid. But I was, I was just working there, having had a year off last year. And I was at home after we shot The Rise of Skywalker and the film was released and I was fortunate enough to do some of the promotional stuff and the world premiere and so on. I was then home for a year and, you know, people see the glamour and oh, there you are traveling the world and, you know, working at Pinewood. It's all very nice. But there are downtimes in between, which was my pretty much entirely last year. It was a good testing point for this situation i'm in now actually i'm doing pretty much what i, what I was doing last year and that is building droids i love it so much as you guys can see because we've got the, i've got my camera open i'm sitting here in my workshop i'm managing to finish some of my droid projects i'm not a very focused person when i'm at home working on droids so i do flit around from one droid to another so i yeah i'm keeping busy droid building and luckily i've got my own business as well so when i'm not working in the film industry i can fall back on my own business and I can just open and close that as required. So yeah, a bit of work, but even more droid building. So I'm, I'm very fortunate and anyone in this lockdown at the moment, if you haven't got a hobby, I highly recommend try and find something you enjoy and, and embrace something, you know, from whether it be doing jigsaw puzzles, you know, something you can buy off the shelf, something to do or find something to make, you know, whether it be costuming or droid building or whatever. Just join some groups and see if you can make something. On Fanthatracks, we have a slew, there's a new word for you, a slew, a glut even, of contributors who write for the site and do podcasts and various other things, help us out at events and conventions. One of those guys is a fellow called Paul Naylor, professional journalist for the Express and Star for nearly 25 years. He now writes for Fanthatracks, and he was recently on BBC Shropshire. If you're a Star Wars fan... The arrival of Disney Plus has been particularly exciting because one of the big exclusives they've got is the first Star Wars TV show. So I, uh, using the, the wonders of modern technology, went to a, a galaxy not too far away. I, I call it Newport. Um, to hook up with someone called Paul Naylor. Now, he is a, a feature 
um, contributor for one of the big Star Wars fan sites. It's called Fanther Tracks. Um, so I thought, well, who better to uh, give us a bit of a review and a, and a pricey of what The Mandalorian is all about um, than Paul? But I started off by asking him a little bit about how he first fell in love with Star Wars when that first film came out all the way back in 1978. It was a cold and frosty February morning, and I can remember standing in the queue outside the Clifton Cinema in Wellington. And like so many cliches that we've heard in the past, it was the film that changed my life. What was special about it, though? Why was it different to anything you'd seen before? Well, for a start, I was quite young anyway. I was probably at the perfect sweet spot in terms of uh, capturing a new audience. But I think for older people that, that saw it at the time, they said that it was very much against what the flow of cinema releases were at that time. There was a lot of sort of very downbeat films, such as like Poseidon Adventure, where it was always like a very dramatic, almost negative ending. And Star Wars certainly had one of the most upbeat endings to films in the late 70s. So after the first three films, we then had loads of fallow years, no Star Wars, and then Disney took over and it's all gone berserk, hasn't it? Once Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005, that was supposedly the end of Star Wars. Disney then acquired it. Automatically, there was talk of episodes seven, eight and nine. But then there was also talk of all these uh, standalone films and potentially TV projects, including live action, which they'd never done before. I think that the outputs that they've got lined up for TV looks way more interesting, perhaps, than the sequel trilogy was, if we're honest. So you now eagerly signed up to this new Disney Plus, which has arrived in the UK at pretty much spot on, the perfect time when everybody's at home, isn't it? <laughs> and of course, the new, the brand new Star Wars TV series is one of the big attractions for it, isn't it? Yeah, there'll be many people in the UK that will have signed up purely for The Mandalorian. <laughs> It's a world more peaceful since the revolution. It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. When this was released in the um, in the US at the tail end of 2019, it was done in very much the same way as they're doing it here now, which is they released the first couple of episodes and then you'll probably get one at the end of this week and then you'll get another one the following week. There's only eight episodes in the first season anyway. I have seen all eight. Because you know people who know people, don't you? <laughs> yeah, through my links to the Star Wars community. Give us a spoiler-free pricey of what The Mandalorian's all about. Set the scene. The actual costume that The Mandalorian wears is very reminiscent of a character called Boba Fett that appeared in the original Star Wars trilogy. When they announced that they were going to release The Mandalorian and we saw the first publicity shots of the very familiar-looking helmet, people were thinking, well, hang on, is, is this Boba Fett? But it isn't Boba Fett. It is a completely different character. Is every single episode a different story or is it one continuous story? You could link it all together into one continuous story, but each individual episode is a story in, it, in its own right. In terms of the character The Mandalorian, certainly from the first couple of episodes that are available now, He's more akin to, say, Clint Eastwood's good, the bad and the ugly kind of role. He's a man of few words, isn't he? He's a man of few words. He's a man of action. And he is very much that sort of like loner, uh, the person that walks into a town, gets things done, gets out of town. Mandalorian, look outside. I'm waiting for you. Yeah? Good. There's also some, some fascinating sort of co-stars. You've got Nick Nolte playing the, the voice of a, a, a little Ugnaught character. Now, an Ugnaught is like a sort of pig crossed with a human, if you like. 
but he does the voice, but somehow facially he also looks like Nick Nolte, which I don't think Nick Nolte would be too pleased about. Me he, won't be, he won't be pleased if he knows he's been chosen for that purpose, will he? <laughs> and then but you've got some really good, strong directors attached to this as well. You've got Bryce Dallas Howard, who's the daughter of Ron Howard, who people probably recognise. Jurassic more. World fame, isn't she? Yes. Yeah, so. Jurassic World trilogy, yeah, yeah. And then you've got Taika Waititi, Joker Rabbit director. He directs an episode. So now I always get put on the spot on Films at Four on BBC Radio Shropshire to give my ratings out of ten when I'm talking about films. So The Mandalorian, your mark out of ten compared to maybe some of the other Star Wars productions? I think that The Mandalorian is a strong eight, maybe even a nine. It's rebooted Star Wars in a way that it needed. Paul Naylor, stay safe and may the Force be with you. And you too, my friend. All the best. Hot dang! This is Darth Elvis and Darth Elvis and Imperials. I'm proud to be a part of the Fat Jack's family, let me tell you. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, Instagram, and check out the website, fatforjacks.com, baby. So, as we have over the last few episodes, we've requested some listeners' questions from uh, our loyal listeners and followers of Fanta Tracks. We've had a couple come through today. Uh, first one from uh, Greg McLaughlin, Rebel Base Card, great podcast. I've been a guest on it. Listen if you get the chance. Uh, his question, I'm sure things like autograph and picture ops will look completely different regardless. Will we keep with social distancing even after the coast is clear? That's quite a relevant question, obviously, given what's going on. What do you think, Mark? Do you think that that this will make us so cautious and so reticent to to be too close together that social distancing will almost by rote become part of our daily life really i guess that's what uh, asking. oh man that, that that's a really good question to be fair do you know what i think that in the short term possibly but i think as time goes on and assuming there's no covid 20 or whatever but i think yeah. things will get back to normal i mean that's an interesting point about autographs and photo ops because especially photo ops the whole notion of a photo op is that you're in a photo with somebody and you normally stood side by side or they have their arms around you i guess it will kind of come down to the talent whoever's actually posing for the photo and if they're comfortable with that again i mean i suppose with autographs you could like we kind of see in um, stores at the moment, you could probably do it at a slight distance. But again, for some of maybe the, the smaller uh, conventions that don't necessarily charge for selfies and stuff like that, that again might be something that may just kind of just naturally ease off. And I think that will be the thing. Once we get back into things, I think we'll all naturally be even more aware of maybe our own distance from other people. But yeah. also then I think it might actually just... Um, it will take a bit of time, I think. It doesn't it feel a bit like you know when people get a bit. I mean, I, I'm, I'll, I'll, you know me. I'm a yeah, hugger. I'm a hugger. Yeah. I see. I'll give you a hug. You know, and and lots of friends. Are, that's just me. And and there's always that. It almost seems, and it's not because people are people and everyone's different. But sometimes people are a little bit like hands up, like personal space. You know, keep a metre square around me, thank you very much. Some people don't like that. And and I think now, because this has happened, more people, not because they don't want to give you a hug, not because they're being antisocial, just because they're being careful. And I think, you know, photo ops is, I think that's the key line in that question. Photo ops, to me, feels like the the, the one that you look at it and go, well, if you're a 20-year-old fan meeting a 70-year-old actor, is that 70-year-old actor going to want to be put in that predicament where, one, they've got to kind of go, well, no, sorry, or it's not safe 
or you're a 70 year old fan meeting a 20 year old actor and the actor's like oh god i don't want to give this to some poor old guy or lady you know what i mean so th there's a lot of questions around that and of course companies big companies convention companies make a lot of money and have made real slick operations out of bang photo bang photo bang photo thank you very much there's your print off you go you know and it's a really slick operation and it works great because everybody wins yeah. the actor wins the fan gets what they want the company running it gets the money side of it so of course they get what they want so everybody wins in that scenario but now you know you think I know, I'm, you know, Ruth's been very diligent. We've got about six bottles of hand gel. We've been <laughs> kind of quietly stocking them up. Because we do, you, even in the house, we've not seen, we've not physically interacted with anybody else for like four weeks yeah. plus, apart from each other. I'm always putting the gel on my hands, so, you know, just almost as a habit. So I think that will happen. I think fanny packs are going to come back in. That's one thing. We're, gonna, we're all going to have to carry stuff around. But I just wonder, it's a great question from Greg. I just wonder whether or not, it will at celebration we'll have all you know everyone gets together when ashley comes out with feloni to do the ahsoka day thing you know everyone's on the steps outside the convention center and everyone's happy and together because god we love this character and we want to celebrate it will we see that again will we see you guys rebel legion all stood together on the steps at the xl doing a group photograph you know it just makes you wonder whether or not these things will change well now they brought it up there's a couple of things one thing obviously Things will change the moment that a vaccine is is yeah. more widely available, or is available, I should say, uh, which obviously we've all heard the news that lots of different companies and labs and universities are all trying to work at vaccines and, and again, different testing. I have uh, some friends who both unfortunately caught COVID-19 but had very mild symptoms, but they're now, obviously, they've, they're through it, they were fine, they self-isolated, and they're now like, well, we've had it now. Can we go back to, we've had it. So, and yeah. we've passed yeah. that kind of, um, where they're kind of like the, the exposure period where they could kind of pass on to other yeah. people. So they're like, now, well, actually, to be fair, you know, we're all right. But obviously it's, it's those who, um, who haven't had it. And especially when you bring up, obviously with Star Wars and especially the original cast who are getting on in their years, you know, yeah. the, that kind of age group are more susceptible to it, it would appear. So therefore, are they the ones who will be more likely to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing this and I'm not comfortable with such close proximity to, to fans and that. And I think, again, as time goes on, things will probably kind of like relax a little bit. But like with everything that at least the Rebel Legion does, if you don't want to be in a group photo, you don't have to be. I think when we get to places like uh, Celebration, People will be hopefully not necessarily thinking about it so much. It might be a topic of conversation that kind of proceeds for convention. But I think once people are there, I'd like to think that, you know, they'll be, you know, more concerned about meeting friends and probably hugging people and stuff like that. And like you say, there are some people who have always been more kind of aware of their own like social distance and space and stuff. And so it just might be more acceptable for people to feel comfortable saying it's all right. I don't want to hug today and not feel like they're being some kind of like yeah. awkward person or something. Yeah. That makes sense. I've rambled quite a bit on that. It makes sense. No, no, no. It just makes sense. And it's a, well, there's no right answer, is there? It's a tricky one and it's a fluid situation as well. You know, we hear all different things about whether or not you can catch it again. You know, it's a, the type of virus that it is. It feels like it could potentially be seasonal. It could be something that comes and goes. You know, vaccines are going to change because 
the virus will change like flus change every season and colds change and so, so we just don't know but, but great question from greg you've got another question from another listener okay so this came from young brian up in scotland um and he basically says star wars comics and books should they be released digitally or held back to support the brick and mortar comic book stores so in other words in this time as we we've seen already like marvel comics haven't released any comics this this month but should they just now release them digitally for those who do consume it digitally or should they like say hold them all back until they can release them in print form as well yeah that's a that's a, you know it's a tricky one i mean i'm a i'm a physical mm-hmm. collector i love having them digitally because it's e- it's easy to review them you know if it's on my screen i can flick through it and such you know so it's handy to do that but i don't know i mean i wonder where financially now you know you're paying i don't know three quid a comic let's say pick a number three quid a comic you know what percentage of that is for the print and paper that you're buying and what percentage of that is the digital cost because you do have the little you know the sticker thing with the with the code inside yeah. if you want to you know read it digitally so part of my head thinks a solution might be that they make these comics available on marvel.com or through starwars.com or something and you pay whatever the percentage of that is and then when the comic comes out they knock off that percentage from the physical comic because one the comic physically is going to come out x amount of weeks after you've been able to get it digitally so it's not a current comic if that makes sense but you still want to own it so you still want to physically own it so is, is there some sort of trade-off we can do between the two it's a good question from brian because like you say a lot of comic shop i mean on our team matt booker runs a comic and toy shop you know this is going to be affecting him massively so he's going to want to know yeah i'll get my comics from matt so he's he's fine with me i'm going to have him anyway because i'm a collector as much as a reader but a lot of people might think oh i've read it now i don't need the physical copy. Yeah. you know you're going to yeah, get yeah that's that. that's very true i think um i mean i'm like you i tried reading comics digitally but i just i don't know it's something about holding the comic it's yeah I, it's one of those yeah. things um i mean i consume a lot of my books anyway audio via audiobooks via audible yeah i always buy the hardbacks anyway and i have an audible subscription so i'm already to a degree consuming them digitally but again i think with novels i think there's a much broader access to kind of like e-readers and kindles and stuff like that and i don't think that necessarily really affects how you consume it but there's but i don't know it's like i said it's something about not being able to turn the, the pages as quick as i would do in, in a yeah in a it's a tactile it is, thing, it's isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah. But like you said, I think fundamentally, really, the the impact is going to be felt on the bricks and mortar stores, especially the independents um, who tend to struggle anyway. I don't get my comics from from Matt, um, but I do get them from a uh, a comic book store down in Cove, Darkstar, and um, yeah, you know, they they do a subscription and they already offer a small discount on for anybody who has a subscription. That's just how they they operate. But yeah, I suppose it kind of comes down to how long is this going to go on for, really? And also, yeah. how long can the publishers like sit on content before they're kind of like, we need to start moving, moving stuff, yeah. uh, you know? And and also again, the the April comics were already printed pretty much, but obviously, I don't know how far in advance they need to print comics. So, at what point do you go? Well, the May ones haven't been printed yet, so we could do that digitally. Or yeah. we've missed our deadline for that, and do we push them all back, or do we have to then start thinking about, you know, releasing two or three comics a week to catch up with our schedule? Because obviously they solicit, was it three months in advance? How do people know how to 
you know, what stock to order if there's nothing to yeah. actually to buy at this, this time? It, it's a really good question, actually. It is. And, and like I say, I mean, my comics are held back, so I get a big wadge yeah. at once. Maybe I should start thinking about getting them sent out monthly as, you know, and get them sent out in smaller batches instead of waiting on them, you know. But, but like you say, it's, it's a difficult situation for, especially for, like you said, independent comic store owners, but also massive problems for Marvel and DC and, and the big publishers because, like you say, you know, if you're, if you know that your fan base, if you like, via independent comic shops are, are bunching them up and they'll collect them all and it's like, okay, you might not pick these up till June, so it doesn't matter if, if May's late or whatever. But you want to read the comics. You want to keep people hooked in. You know, Marvel want to keep people invested in all the superhero titles and clearly Star Wars because it's just this massive ongoing storyline. There's got to be a middle ground. So in answer to the question, I think, yeah, I think if they can find some sort of middle ground where you can read them now digitally but then pick them up later as a physical comic, it's not going to help the comic shops in the short term, but at least it means there's some cash flow coming in when we, fingers crossed, get this all up and mm, running again. Yeah. And also saying that, I mean, like I said, for me, I don't live anywhere near my comic store. So I... I don't no, know. Exactly. So, I mean, I pay for mine. I, I, I get a text once a month saying the total for your comics is or whatever it is. You know, so I phone up and I pay and they, they post them out. So really, to an extent, if more people are happy to, to do that, and actually if this does go on for longer, people like Matt and Matt are willing and are able to say, OK, well, we're now going to do your subscriptions on a monthly basis. So each month you're going to get a watch. They could almost go to a like a, a mail order service in the interim. Yeah, that's yeah. if the actual comics are being produced. That's the big question, yeah. isn't it? That's the big question. So, yeah, so thanks to our listeners, as ever, for sending in those questions. Always appreciated. And next episode, uh, we'll bring some more listeners' questions. Hi, Paul Blake here, Greedo from Star Wars A New Hope, and you're listening to Fanfa Tracks. So on the site last week, we ran a competition uh, giving UK listeners and readers the chance to win two copies of The Rise of Skywalker. One copy would be won via the website and the second we will announce in a moment will be available through this very podcast uh, we've chosen a winner for the uh, website competition and so the winner of our blu-ray rise of skull blu-ray is paul tibbs and uh, we'll drop him a line and let him know that he's won but paul congratulations you've won a copy of the rise of skywalker now this is episode 32 of making tracks episode 33 is out later in the week episode 34 is out a week today on that episode you will find out who has won the latest second copy of the rise of skywalker on blu-ray to win that all you have to do is listen to this episode and then head to fanthatracks.com where we will post an article telling you the listeners of this podcast how to win so you're gonna have to listen to this episode to get the answer to this one you're gonna listen to the episode there'll be a question related to this episode you've got to answer it correctly you get put in the hat the winner gets picked out next tuesday we'll let you know second copy of the rise of skywalker on blu-ray congratulations to paul and good luck in the competition woohoo I'm leaving that with Hooming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've come to the end of episode 32 of Making Tracks. I think we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. We've spoke to Lee. We've talked about old friends not forgotten. We've talked about the Rise of Skywalker documentary. We've even given somebody a copy of the Rise of Skywalker on Blu-ray. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay part of the action and up to date on all the Star Wars news, check out Fantatrax app via the App Store on your mobile device. 
You can reach out to us via email at radio at fantatracks.com. So if you're sending in your listeners' questions, that's where you need to send them to. Comment, like, and share on any of our social media feeds at Fantatracks. And be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, preferably a five-star one, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher or smart speaker of choice. Thank you, Mark, for being with us again for another wonderful episode of Make You're Tracks. welcome. I've got nowhere else to be.